I grew up in a uh, family where I have a storyteller for a mom. You guys know my mom, obviously my wife does, but if you have ever met my mom, you'll find this to be true. She loves to tell stories, and her stories are, are like half truthful and half embellished, but she really loves to tell stories. So it's, it's kind of like when guys will go and talk about their fish, and then the next guy they talk, to, they talk about their fish, and then their fish, you know, it keeps getting bigger and bigger. Stories like that. Well, I have good news for you today. Uh, this morning's story is so good, it doesn't need any embellishment whatsoever. You know, what makes a good story, there's a lot of debate about it, but it's interesting characters, layer upon layer, there's intrigue to it, there's depth of character, there's a good plot line, there is irony, and in our story today, from Genesis 37, we get a lot of irony. We get a lot of great things in this story. It's very familiar to us, and there's lots of irony, but all of this irony, you know, this humor of unexpected twists, all of that funnels down to prove one main point, and it's this. God's commitment to further his plan is far greater than our commitment to try and ruin it. Amen? Yeah, maybe? That's, our, that's uh, the main idea we're going to talk about today. And we're going to see a story of plans and foiled plans and God still working through very broken, messed up people to accomplish his great purposes. So that's what's in store for us today. Uh, there's a lot to teach in this passage, but I'm going to focus on two things. Number one, it's going to be Joseph's brothers and their response to Joseph's dreams and how they basically try to prevent them from coming true. And I'm also going to focus on the last part of the title today, The Unstoppable God, how God continues his mighty and glorious purposes through Joseph and through Joseph's enslavement. So that's what we have to do today. And so first, let's uh, take a look at this passage together. I'm going to read the entire chapter, so strap in and let your imagination whirl because, you know what, this is actually a true story. This really happened. Sometimes I need to give that disclaimer so that we remember this bizarre story really happened. All right, Genesis chapter 37, verse 1. <clears throat> Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being about 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, Israel, he loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in a field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So, common theme here, they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then, he dreamed another dream, and he told it to his brothers. 
and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were all bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their flock near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So Israel said to him, Go now and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him, that's Joseph, from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found him at Dothan. Tie a bow on it, the story's done, right? No, verse 18. The brothers see him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him. <laughs> and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. And he said this, that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of the robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and not, let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes, and he returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe, they slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, uh, This we have found. Please identify whether this is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son for many days. 
All of his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to who? To Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. This is God's word. And this is the story I am tasked to share with you today. You see how I said it has many layers? There's a lot in this story. And I'm going to focus, as I said, on Joseph's brothers and then how God continues his purposes through this. So we're going to first walk through the story and I'm going to bring out two points at the end and that's what we're going to do. Um, The first thing that we're going to take a look at is Joseph's brothers. And they are men whose hearts are consumed with jealousy. They are consumed with it. We have 12 brothers. They're the sons of Israel. If you remember, Jacob was renamed to Israel. And Israel showed one of them in particular tremendous amounts of favoritism. You know, it's, it's good that my sisters aren't here because I can tell you very plainly that I was the favorite of my family growing up. Okay? I was the baby. Two older sisters. They were terrible human beings. But me? Oh, just wonderful. No, if they were here, they would all say that one of them was, and it wasn't me. So there's that honesty moment. But he showed Joseph tremendous amounts of favoritism. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say this is probably a pretty bad way to parent your kids. Okay? Have one that is obviously the one that gets everything, and the other ones are just in the background. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay? Not a great idea. Now for some backstory, which provided here at the beginning of chapter 37. Joseph had told some of his brothers, uh, he had told on them, I should say. The text tells us that he was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wife. So he's a 17-year-old boy, and his four brothers, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, those are the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, they're all of about similar ages. But Joseph, who was the favorite, was tasked by his father to give a report. He brings back this bad report of them. You can imagine what he would tell his father, Dad, those boys weren't working hard. You told them to do, to do this, and they weren't doing it. We don't know what the bad report was. But either way, it didn't cause the favorite son to be any more popular in the eyes of the brothers. We can see how that would happen. Okay, tattling or whatever this might have been. They did not like him. Secondly, verse 3, let's take a look there. It makes us plain to us that Joseph is the favorite child. The brothers all knew it, for you can't help but know when your parent favors one child over another. Can I get an amen? If you had brothers and sisters, you know this. This is most likely due to Israel's special love to Rachel, not Leah, not Bilhah, or Zilpah. We're not going to talk about how multiple spouses is such a bad idea today. But you can see how favoritism sets you up on a really bad foot, okay? He loved Rachel more than Leah. That was evident. And Rachel has a son, and his name is Joseph. So this trickles down, and he is the favorite son. So his father, to demonstrate this favoritism, he made for him a robe of many colors, is what it says. Him only, not the others. That's very important. Every other brother was very likely clad in the normal clothes of the day, you know, your standard one-color beige shepherd's robe. But Joseph got something special from his dad. 
he receives this multicolored robe, this shirt of immense value. It was ornate, it was impressive, it was luxurious, and it was special. It was costly. It was much like the way that Israel saw his son Joseph. Special. Now I thought this morning of just standing up here and singing a bunch of Donny Osmond songs for you. Something like Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, but I chose against that because I don't want to learn bad songs. Ooh, got him. Um, but anyway, I, my wife told me this was a bad idea, so I probably should have listened. But I showed her that this was in my Amazon cart, and she was like, don't do it. And I said, you mean like undo it? Because I already bought this thing. And she was like, you're not actually going to wear that, are you? And I said, I might have a volunteer wear it. But then I decided, just look at this piece of beauty. In her words, she said, this looked as though uh, a bunch of old paint cans exploded onto a shirt. She might be right, but uh, this, I think, gets the idea. Imagine all the other brothers' coats, bland, cheap, not costly. And then there's one brother who's obviously the favorite. And he walks around wearing this thing. Okay, this is the contemporary version of what I imagine this would look like. So I have a little interpretive license, Teresa, okay? So he's wearing this. Verse 4 tells us that his brothers see this special treatment. They see this favoritism, and it fuels something inside of each of them. The text says that they wedded him, hated him. They hated their brother. It says that they could not even speak peaceably to him anymore. Every word, every interaction of theirs with Joseph must have been biting and filled with hatred. So here's a question. Have you ever felt something like this before? Hatred for another person. Have you ever felt this type of jealousy? Has it ever started to consume you? Have you ever experienced what this is like? I remember um, in high school, I was a basketball player in my high school, average, you know, but I did make it onto the starting team of my high school, which I thought was pretty special. And it was about halfway through that year that uh, I lost my, spart my starting spot to a close friend of mine. And I, it, you know, it wasn't his fault that he was like 5'4", all the way up until his junior year, and had learned to use whatever he had, so he became a great ball handler. He was a great guard, and oftentimes played point guard. But it wasn't his fault that in the matter of his junior year, he shot up a foot in height, and it was now nearing six foot, five inches tall, and had a V frame, and was just a monster of a Dutch man. Okay? This was my friend, and I lost my starting spot to this, to this guy. It wasn't anything he did. You know, and can you imagine things like this, you know, if you've ever been in a scenario like this, you think to yourself, well, <laughs> I didn't want to start anyway, you know, <laughs> like that was true, but you start to think these really nuts thoughts, you start to think, he's probably just the coach's favorite, you know, that's why he's starting, you know, as he's standing like this and can dunk the basketball, and I'm like, lay up, lay up, you know, you start to be consumed with these thoughts. I started to get angry and frustrated and jealous and irritated at him. And he was a close friend of mine, too. How interesting is that? I began to see everything he did as man manipulative, as backstabbing. He was out to get me, right? Was it his problem at all? 
No, this was my problem. My heart was angry and I was consumed with jealousy. And this is what Joseph's brothers feel like. It's called jealousy. And the temperature of their jealousy is getting close to a boiling point. Something's going to break soon. But guess what, guys? The story's just beginning. All he is is the favorite kid with a fancy robe. Wait till it continues. Joseph now has a dream. And we know that this dream was of the Lord because we probably know this story. God was revealing his plan to Joseph. But you know what? Joseph's brothers did not see this. Or they could not see this, rather. So Joseph talks to his brothers and tells them his dream. In verse 6 and 7, he said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaf gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Now, before I go on, I want to give just a quick word. Because many people jump to two different sides when it comes to Joseph. You have some people who, who read that and they're like, what an arrogant little kid. He's just flaunting this in front of his brothers. Of course, he got what was coming to him. You know, you, you might think that. And you also might think that since Joseph is a typology, like he is an example of unjust suffering of what Jesus experienced, that he could possibly do no wrong. Okay? The text does not tell us if either of those are true. The text tells us that he told his brothers. So at very worst, he might have been a bit naive in telling them, you know, brothers that already hate your guts, and then telling them a dream like this. Maybe there's someone else to tell this to, like a godfather or something. I don't know. But instead, he goes to them and tells that. But at very best, he could have known that this was an oracle of God. And he could have been communicating something that God wanted the brothers to know. He told his brothers. That's where I'm going to go with, okay? He told his brothers. I don't want to villainize Joseph, and I don't want to make him the hero of the story either, because the hero of the story is the Lord. So, verse 5 tells us that when they heard this, they hated him even more after hearing this dream. Verse 8 tells us that they respond in anger and disbelief, saying, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? You have got to be kidding me. When is this going to end? This is the most irritating little brother we've ever had. They are not for this. And so the text says they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And so I think it's important for us to focus on their response for a bit and talk about what jealousy does to our hearts. What happens when a person becomes so consumed with jealousy? What happens to you, for instance, let's get this out of the abstract, when someone else always gets recognized and you get forgotten? What happens when someone else always gets the attention, the compliments, they might even get the raise at work, and you got passed over again? What happens when their life looks perfect on social media and Instagram, while they have the obedient kids you've always wanted, when they have the loving gaze of their dad, like Joseph's brothers, but you are pushed to the background, or like Joseph and his brothers? Jealousy, I believe, occurs when we don't get the glory or attention or praise that we think we deserve. Someone else has it. I think I should have it. I don't have it, and they do. And that feeling starts to well inside of you. We might expect it to come to us, but we don't get it. We might even demand it, demanding respect, but we're left empty. Feelings of anger and bitterness 
and resentfulness, hatred, and even thoughts of vengeance, getting even, arise within our hearts, and they start to consume us. Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt what this feels like? The book of James in the New Testament gives us some very helpful explanations as to why this occurs in us. James chapter 4, the first two verses, he says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Isn't it this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire, but you don't have, so you murder. You covet, but you can't obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. That's the root of jealousy. James 3.16, a chapter earlier, tells us that where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Do you see how this comes out in this story? What jealousy does? The fact is, is that envy blinds us to reality. It causes people to do terrible and wicked things, things that they would never probably ponder under normal circumstances, but now, since they're so consumed with hatred and bitterness, in the case of Joseph's brothers, envy has replaced a love for a family member with a love for that family member's demise. When they should be loving and tolerating their younger brother, they instead now envision only ways to remove him from their lives. In their jealousy in their rage, they are now blinded to God's will for them. Why do I say this? Why do I say they're blinded to God's will for them? It's because this. Back in Genesis chapter 15, there's a wonderful promise that God gives to Abraham. He gives him a threefold promise, right? He's going to have this land, he's going to have descendants, and he's going to be a blessing to the nations. Amazing, right? But there was some fine print in there too. And maybe you remember this. In chapter 15 of Genesis, verses 13 through 16, the text continues and says this, The Lord said to Abraham, But know this, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And they will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Right? We know this is the Exodus story. This is what God does in the beginning of Exodus. But he says, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, Abram. You shall be buried in a good old age. Then they shall come back here, your descendants, in the fourth generation, and here's why it's going to take so long. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God gave Joseph this dream because God is committed to his eternal purposes and plans for his people. But the brothers don't see this. The brothers see Joseph as an obstacle to their happiness. They don't see Joseph as a means for their deliverance and the furtherance of God's plan. And because they are consumed with jealousy, they don't even consider the possibility that this dream might just be from the Lord. 
the Lord knows what's going on. He knows every part of this story. He knows all the details. And he even knows that for 400 years, his people's going to have to be enslaved in Egypt. Why? Because God's committed to delivering his people and showing his mighty and outstretched arm, what that actually looks like. He's also committing in his patience to wait for the sins of the Amorites who currently live in the promised land to build up, build up, and build up to such a wicked point that when Joshua comes in with the conquest and wipes out all the inhabitants of that land 400 or 500 years later, that you will see God as just for doing so. God knows exactly what he's doing in this story, but the brothers refuse to see it. Isn't that interesting? How often do we see maybe God's plan for us and think because on the immediate it seems miserable or bad that it can't possibly be something that's from the Lord? If only they were patient and chose to love their brother instead of enacting their own vengeance. Who knows? To them, Joseph is an obstacle in their way, not a means of God's deliverance. For them, if Joseph's exaltation requires that they be humiliated, they simply won't have it. So, the story continues. If that's not enough, guess what, guys? There's a second dream. God's not done. He often confirms things in the Bible with multiple dreams or visions or things of that nature. And he does so in this story. This time the sheaves are replaced with stars in the sky and the sun and the moon are now included. So verses 9 through 11 tell us of this second dream. Joseph dreams this and he tells it to his brothers and he says, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. This time the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, the father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And this is interesting what happens here. In verse 11, his brothers get more jealous. But his father, it says, when he cooled down, he, he kept this in mind. Maybe he started to wonder, Is this part of God's plan? Because God used my deception in some mighty ways. I wonder, I don't know. It just says that he keeps this in mind. But his brothers get more jealous. And now we move on to the next thing after jealousy. When jealousy gets all full grown and all grown up, it gives birth to something called vengeance. And vengeance is taking matters into your own hands and executing justice as you see fit, not the way the Lord sees fit. So Joseph, following his father's instructions, goes after his brothers, eventually finds them in the area of Dothan, and they see him coming from afar. And then they say this, which is kind of funny, here comes the dreamer, dream boy. I imagine what type of insults they made for their brother during their time of hating him the last few years. But I'm glad that the scriptures just said the dreamer, because we don't have to read too far into that. Here comes the dreamer, here comes dream boy. We got an idea. Let's kill him. Let's throw him into one of these pits. Do you see what happens when they allow sin to grow unchecked in their hearts? They now, in a few minutes' time, based on when they recognize him coming from afar until the time when he draws near to them, they devise a plan to murder their brother, to lie to everyone about it. We'll kill him. Then we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him. And this next phrase is filled to the brim with irony. 
We'll say that an animal has devoured him, and then <laughs> we will see what becomes of his dreams. <laughs> Guess what? Yeah, you will. Because God is committed to his purposes through this. And all of their attempts to try to destroy what God has done is going to backfire on them in incredible ways. They think that by conspiring to murder their brother and hiding it from all people, that they're going to effectively remove the possibility of these dreams from even coming true. But instead, what they end up doing, it's like a boulder on top of a giant hill, right? Their actions ends up pushing that boulder off and setting God's plan into motion. That's called irony, and that is what we find in this story. They think that if Joseph's dead, they'll never have to bow their knees to him. Oh, but how wrong they are. If you remember, I was thinking about this. In the New Testament, in the book of Acts, after Jesus has risen from the dead, Peter, one of the disciples, he is continuing to give these incredible sermons about the risen Lord and what he's done. And then they have these religious leaders, and one of them is named as Gamaliel. He is a, uh, a, one of the top, wise, chief priest, Pharisee types. And what's interesting is they bring it to him, and Gamaliel wisely says about Peter, he says, if this plan or undertaking is of man, it will fail. But, he tells all of the crowds who are angry at Peter's preaching, but if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found to be opposing God. And how right Gamaliel was about the message of the resurrection and when you apply that to this story, how right. Now I want to take a quick focus at one of the brothers in particular, because the text goes and starts talking about the oldest brother, whose name is Reuben. Okay? Reuben hears of this, and he speaks up, and he says, whoa, 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 guys, slow down. Let's not take his life. Shed no blood. Instead, just throw him into this pit here in the wilderness to die. But don't lay a hand on him. He says, we don't want to be guilty of, like, actively murdering our brother, guys. We're just going to passively murder him. Okay? Whoa. We don't want to be guilty of bloodshed. But we're going to take him, throw him into a pit, and let him die. Okay? <laughs> Off of our hands. Okay? But the reason he says this is incredibly interesting to me. Verse 22 must be paid attention to. Reuben said this to them, shed no blood, throw him here into this pit in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. And then my Bible has a dash, it has a hyphen in there, and it gives us the reason why. Because he intended to rescue Joseph out of their hand and restore him to his father. Now, why would Reuben want to do this? Like, wouldn't all of his brothers hate his guts if he did that? If he was the one to rescue his brother? The answer actually happens back in chapter 35. Now this is incredibly interesting to me. Back in chapter 35, we didn't get to touch on it last week, but Rachel gets pregnant, again, which is amazing, but she has a terrible, and I mean terrible delivery, to the point where she loses her life giving birth to uh, Israel's youngest son, whose name is Benjamin. So she loses her life, the family moves a little bit in the area, and then verse 22 this is a complete cliffhanger in the story which gets no resolution. Verse 22 in chapter 35 says, While Israel lived in that land, Reuben, who is his oldest son, he went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And then you have five haunting words 
and Israel heard of it. I don't know what it was like growing up in you guys' houses, but when my mom would say things like, wait till your father gets home, I knew what was in store. And what was even worse is when she would say that, and then she would talk to my dad, and they would come out of the room, and my dad would walk out like this. And not say a thing. And Israel heard of it. He knows exactly what has happened. And he is probably a pretty angry father for his son's disrespectful action. I don't know what I'm doing. Maybe I'm cutting up carrots right now. But <laughs> I just figured that needed a little explanation. Apparently my thumb is the carrot. Or anyway, he hears of this. And then this is what the text does. Okay? He sleeps with Bilhah, his father's concubine. Israel heard of it. <clears throat> now, the sons of Jacob were 12. And it jumps into a chapter and a half of genealogies. Right? That's a cliffhanger. Oh, what's going to happen? And now in this story, it picks back up on these very details, and you realize, oh, 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 Reuben done messed up, Aaron. Reuben is in trouble. What Reuben did is he slept with one of his father's spouses. Again, we're not going to talk about the multiple spouse thing, which is a bad idea. But he ends up doing this and shaming his father. And guess what happens to the first in line to receive the blessing? He gets knocked off. The next one in line is the, are the two brothers, Simeon and Levi, who are already going to be bumped off because they executed vengeance after uh, their sister was defiled. So you have this whole line of people dropping like flies. And Reuben says to himself, I know what I'll do. I'll tell my brothers, go along with the plan, put them in the pit, but secretly I'm going to come back. And I'm willing that my brothers be angry with me if it means I can get restored to my father. You don't have to make this stuff up. This is all right here in the text. Isn't this astounding? This is what real human people are like, kind of conniving. This is what we often are like. We have our plans and we know what we can do to get back in dad's good graces or whatever it might be. So this is what Reuben does. He thinks if he can get them thrown into a pit, he will have restoration with his father. So his plan is set in motion. Joseph draws near. They take him by force. They strip him of this fancy robe. Shirt goes bye-bye now, guys. Sorry for you for that. The shirt gets taken from him. They take their brother. They throw him into an empty cistern, into a pit. And then they leave him there to die. And what do they do? The next verse shows the heart of their callousness. Uh, verse 25. Then they sat down to eat. When I read that, I read this passage through multiple times, and I stopped on that, and I'm like, why is that detail in there? And then I realized they have such hatred in their heart for their brother that after just throwing, throwing him into a pit, they decide... Yeah, this is a good time for lunch. They are likely hearing a 17-year-old who is terrified out of his mind right now saying, guys, don't do this. Come on, this is not right. This is not what dad would want. This is wrong. You shouldn't leave me here. Guys, help, help. And they sit there, bite after bite after bite, completely callous in their heart for their brother. And here's why. Because jealousy has consumed them. That's why. They think to themselves, as we often do, well, 
he deserves it. Maybe she's just getting what's coming to her. I mean, she's been like that her whole life. So it's about time it rolls around and gets her too. Like, you expect me to do something about that? They think these types of callous thoughts. And then they see a caravan of Ishmaelites coming. And so Judah speaks up with another idea. Hey, guys, uh, rather than just letting him die, we don't want his blood to be on our hands. Like, we're not going to get anything from that anyway. There's no profit there. So let's sell our brother into lifelong slavery to these people who are heading back to Egypt. What a great idea. And so these likely ten brothers, because Benjamin is still very young at this time, these likely ten brothers say, hey, if we can sell him for 20 shekels of silver, we'll each get a little bit in our pocket too. You see how hate-filled they are? This is a terrible story. It's a really good story, but it's really terrible too. So they wave goodbye to the dreamer. Their problem is now gone, shipped off. Na 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 na, na 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 na. Hey, hey, hey. Goodbye. There he goes, everyone. You guys want some more lunch? Man, this is really good. Reuben evidently had left at some point, and so he comes back and he returns to find, uh oh, Joseph's not in the pit anymore. And so he finds his brother gone, and he also finds all his hopes for restoration to his father gone in an instant. Now all the consequences and guilt fall upon him, and he says, what have you done with him? Where shall I go? Like, what's going to happen for me now? Why did you guys do this? And now his plans are now foiled. They finish the final step of their wicked plan by killing a goat. They take the robe that was so fancy, they take it and then they dip it in the blood of a goat. Speaking of irony, do you remember when Jacob, who's now Israel, deceived his own brother Esau? What was cooked for his father? A goat. It's so interesting to me how a deceiver who once killed and prepared this goat with the help of his mom to deceive his own father is now going to be deceived by the blood of the very animal that he tried to deceive his own brother or his own father with. How interesting is that little detail? So they kill this goat, they dip it in the blood, and then they bring it up to their father and they say, uh, Israel, could, can you tell us if, if this is your son Joseph's cloak? Could, is that his? How conniving they are. And he sees it, and he says, that's Joseph's robe. And he starts mourning, and he is wailing, and he says, he won't be comforted. No, I'm going to go down to Sheol with my son. There's no hope for me. My favorite son is now gone. And then his brothers do even more. And this is just like salt in the wound to me as I read this story. Do you guys know that there's multiple ways to lie to somebody? Right? There's multiple ways you can lie. You can uh, tell something that's outright false. You can ban the truth. You can withhold some details that would be pertinent to knowing. You can also lie through this thing that's called pretense, which is a term that I wasn't really aware of until I studied this week. And this is allowing somebody else to live in a false reality. The brothers join with their sisters, and they come up to comfort dad. Oh, dad, is there anything I can get you? No, no, I can't. You sure? You need a snack or something? Isn't that manipulative? This is another way that they are so committed to trying to foil God's plan that they just want to deceive everybody and just let it roll. 
there's two takeaways that I want us to pull from this story. There's many, many lessons to be learned here, but there's two that I want to focus on in closing. The first one is this. Left unchecked, jealousy will consume you. And this story is a perfect example of what it did to a whole family. I could hardly imagine a scenario where Joseph's brothers earlier on in their life, when there might have been just a little bit of favoritism shown, would have ever thought that they would have gotten into this situation. I don't think they ever would have thought that they would have murdered effectively their brother, lied in tremendous ways, and did all of this to just finally get him. I don't think they would ever do that. But here's the deal. Our sin, if it's constantly fed in us, it's like a weed, and it will grow. It will develop deep roots, and it will start to consume and choke out every good thing around it. That's what sin does. And so when we talk about sanctification, our life as Christians, putting to death our sin, putting to death the flesh and living in this, that's what we're talking about. This is why it matters, because if you don't start pulling the weeds, they're going to take over the garden. That's why. Jealousy, covetousness, lustful desires to have what isn't yours, these are all remnants of our flesh, of the old nature that should be dying in each one of us. Let's not be people who give a walker to our limping flesh, okay? Let it fall and let it die. That's what we're called to do. We live in a day and age, um, Amazon Prime's a good example, right? We can see everything and we can practically have anything, can't we? It's pretty easy. We think we ought to have everything we've ever wanted, and so we get angry when someone posts a picture of their seemingly perfect life on social media. We, we see other people notice for all these things that we get forgotten for. But I suggest that the antidote to all of our jealousy boils down to this. Contentment. Say it with me. Contentment. Learning to be grateful for the things we do have. What if we stopped fixating on all the things we didn't have and started recalling to our minds the innumerable blessings we have in Christ? Honestly, who's got life better than us? Really, as believers, as people who know that our sins have been washed away, our sins, though they are many, his mercy is more. We've been ushered into the family of God. We know the eternal one and we know that he is for us. What more could we want? Really, what more could we want? A nice house, that's going to fall apart one day. It's going to require maintenance, just like every other house in the history of the world has needed. You know, a new car, guess what? We live in Michigan, it's going to rust. What else do you want? Do you want the praise and the glory from other people? Guess what? As a person who's in front of people a lot, the cheers fade away. Okay? You know, you might want to have everybody under the sun say, good job, whatever. But you know what? Uh, Sunday afternoon happens and it's quiet. Because the praise of men will never satisfy our appetites. The praise of their father is never going to satisfy their, their, their search for identity and worth. It can't do it. So I say once more, who could have it better than us? We ought to be a very grateful people. Grandpa always jokes and he says, Christians should be the happiest people in the world. And I get it. We have all blessings in Christ. We have an eternity secured by him and with him. Is that not enough for us? Romans chapter 8 gives us this incredible promise. 
says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. It says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of God's creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What more is our heart looking for? Look to Christ. Don't look to be the favorite in somebody else's eyes, but as Psalm 16 says, find your contentment and your joy and your chosen portion in the only source that will never fail you, and that's in God himself. That's it. The question is, are we choosing him? He's our chosen portion. Do we see him as better? And now we come to the last, the final, the greatest lesson in this passage. I've entitled this sermon, Jealousy, Vengeance, Lies, and the Unstoppable God. And here is why. Because God's commitment to further his perfect plans is far greater than our commitment to ruin them. Amen? The very measures that Joseph's brothers take to try to foil these dreams instead set in motion the very reality that they wanted to avoid. And it's God who gets the last laugh. (laughs) The point is simple. God wins. His will will be accomplished. God knows exactly what he's going to do, and jealous little boys aren't going to stop him. Think about what's happening in the story. Joseph is now on his way to Egypt, and guess what's starting to get fulfilled? God is preparing him to suffer unjustly and to ultimately become their rescue in the midst of a terrible, a terrible looming famine. And God has decreed that Joseph's brothers will indeed bow down to him, for this is God's magnificent rescue plan to protect his people by leading them into Egypt, the only place that's going to have any food because God's going to make it so, so that he can show mercy to them and demonstrate the power of his mighty hand and outstretched arm. That's what God is up to. And we are foolish to try to foil God's plan. In closing, just as God was committed to rescue his own people in the Old Testament through Joseph, so too this is the most amazing reality to me. God was committed to our rescue through Christ. Committed to it. There was obstacle at every corner, right? Herod sought to kill Jesus. He wiped out all of the male children in the age because he was so threatened by him. Guess what? Jesus lived. The religious leaders, uh, or Satan comes in and tries to tempt and ensnare Jesus. And instead, Jesus defeats Satan. Next, the religious leaders and all the people intend to destroy Jesus in their jealous rage and remove the final obstacle to their happiness. But guess what? Killing Jesus only ensured that he would rise again for our justification. That's what God does with man's plans. He is committed to accomplishing his own, and he will do so. So by faith in Jesus alone, we can be freed from the consuming power of sin and jealousy and hatred, and we can align ourselves with God's perfect will. You don't want to be found opposing the will of God because that is a battle you can never win. Flee to the unending mercy of the Son of God, for God's will will not be thwarted.